Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm willing to bet, Tracy, that when you hear the term robot, mm-hmm. uh, you think of things like Honda's Asimo or the iRobot Roomba that might tootle around the house tidying up floors. I think of the bad robot <laughs> TV placard. Yeah, from J.J. Abrams' production company. Yep. Um, but there were actually way long before Czech playwright Carol Kapik coined the term robot in his 1920 play R.U.R., which stood for Rossum's Universal Robots, uh, there were mechanized creations, automata, that were being created without electronics or computers. And many were, you know, fairly simple, but they really paved the way for robots of today. So if you do a search for first robot or earliest robot online, you're probably going to find all kinds of different conflicting answers. Some of them are philosophical, some of them are mythological, and some of them are religious. Uh We know that clockwork devices go back many, many, many years, but most historians on the subject are not really eager to pinpoint which exact one was first. Yeah, there's uh, there are too many possible answers because there are some mythological ones that aren't necessarily supported uh, with hard evidence. Those ones are a little bit tricky. Some people even refer to like the biblical story of creation as kind of a first um, almost robotics experiment sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, it's really hard. I mean, you get into a big philosophical debate with people if you say, this was the first robot we know about for sure. Because they're like, eh, yeah, yeah, there's some other options. Yeah. So you want to do that. And some of them are so far back in history that the substantiation for them is just not 100% clear. Right. And we're going to look back at the early history of mechanized beings and clockworks and steam-powered mini-marvels. So you're not going to hear us talk about the DARPA Big Dog or the Mars Curiosity Rover. We're going incredibly old school with this list. So nothing past the late 1700s. And we have just selected five for the sake of podcast length. But, of course, that leaves out many, many others because there really are many more examples of this than I think many people realize. So think of this as just a sampling of some of mankind's ventures into automated beings. And really, I'm telling a fib when I say it's five. It's sort of five instances, but some of them feature more than one Yes, automata. So it's going to be fun. We're fudging our numbers, but we're doing it with a good heart. <laughs> yes. Uh, and we're going to start with one that is not easily substantiated. We're going off of one text, but it's important. And that's Yanshi's Automated Man. So the first one is in China. The reference to it can be found in a 3rd century BCE Taoist text. In the course of this text, a story is told of King Mu of Chu, who reigned from 976 to 922 BCE. In it, this so-called artificer presents an automated man to the king. In his book, Science and Civilization in China, Volume 2, writer Joseph Needham quotes a translated text about this automaton. And in his quote, he says, The king stared at the figure in astonishment. It walked with rapid strides, moving its head up and down so that anyone would have taken it for a live human being. The artificer touched its chin and it began singing perfectly in tune. He touched its hand and it began posturing, keeping perfect time. 
As the performance was drawing to an end, the robot winked its eye and made advances to the ladies in attendance, whereupon the king became incensed and would have had Yan Shi executed on the spot, had not the latter, in mortal fear, instantly taken the robot to pieces to let him see what it really was. And indeed, it turned out to be only a construction of leather, wood, glue, and lacquer, variously colored, white, black, red, and blue. Examining it closely, the king found all the internal organs complete. Liver, gall, heart, lungs, spleen, kidneys, stomach, and intestines. And over these again, muscles, bones, and limbs with their joints, skin, teeth, and hair, all of them artificial. The king tried the effect of taking away the heart and found that the mouth could no longer speak. He took away the liver and the eyes could no longer see. He took away the kidneys and the legs lost their power of locomotion. The king was delighted. So, and that's an often referred to text when people talk about the history of robots. And we don't have evident, hard evidence of this automaton, but it's significant that it would have been mentioned in a historical Taoist text that refers back 700 years. Uh, it evidences this fascination with mechanical beings going way, way, way back into ancient history. So early. Yeah. I would be delighted, too, if I were the king. <laughs> Who would not? Uh, so that's our first one. And the second one is uh, a little more recent than that. This one was a pigeon created by Archytas of Tarentum. And Archytas was born around 428 BCE in a Greek-controlled territory that's now part of southern Italy. He was a very accomplished man. He was a philosopher, a mathematician, an astronomer, a statesman, and a commander-in-chief. And sometimes he gets called the father of mechanics. He's said to be the most advanced of the Pythagorean mathematicians, and he classified mathematics into four divisions, geometry, arithmetic, astronomy, and music. He was really influential in his time. And Archytas also influenced the work of Plato and Aristotle. In fact, he's said to have rescued Plato from Dionysus II, but historians are generally pretty quick to point out that the relationship between Plato and Archytas was a complex one. It was pretty complicated. They had similar stances on many philosophical issues, but they also had some pretty obvious disagreements. But for today's interest, the accomplishment of Archytas that's the most relevant is a mechanical bird. This bird, which he called simply the pigeon, was suspended at the end of a pivoting bar. It moved in revolutions around the bar, uh, either using a jet of steam or compressed air. And while the bird, which was created somewhere between 400 and 350 BCE, is often listed as a footnote to Archytas' body of work, it's really important to remember that he built this mechanism more than 2,000 years ago. So it was this very simple little robotic pigeon. Yes. Some people point to it as the first robot in recorded history, but as we mentioned earlier, it's a claim that a lot of people are just not willing to make for 100% sure about any of these. Yeah. And now there's kind of a big jump to our next one, uh, because we are getting to Da Vinci, who many people know was really interested in mechanics. Uh, and so Leonardo was born in April of 1452. He's one of history's most famous men. So we all know his famous paintings like The Last Supper and The Mona Lisa and his drawings of the Vitruvian Man. So he's not really a mystery to anyone who has even a passing knowledge of history. Late in his life, in 1515, he created this automata lion, allegedly to present to King Francois I. The faux feline was said to have walked forward toward the king, 
opened up its chest and revealed a cluster of lilies. And while there's some lack of specificity about the original lion, uh, and Leonardo did not leave any sketches of it, he did make detailed sketches of the mechanisms that he likely used in its construction, and he left some notes as well. And in 2009, Renato Boreto, a master builder of automata, uh, used those sketches and da Vinci's notes, and he actually recreated the lion. It's really, really interesting to watch. You can find video of it online and we'll link to some of it. You know, it's kind of sobering to watch this sample of robotics that's based on early 1500s ingenuity because it's still a pretty impressive piece today to see this. It almost looks like a giant toy. It's life size, but it's, you know, carved. So it doesn't look like a real lion, but it just, it moves along and it kind of it has wheels in its feet and it rolls as its legs move along the floor and it tilts its head side to side. And it's kind of um, mind blowing to me to think that that was designed hundreds of years ago. Yes. Leonardo also designed a fully automated man that was styled to look like an armored knight with a rope and gear me- mechanism to raise and move the limbs. But there's no record of this one actually being built. Italian robotics historians have also constructed a machine based on these designs. Yeah, it um, it can't do quite the amount of moving on its own that the lion can, which is why we focused on the lion for this one. But I thought that the um, the armored man should get at least a mention. And then we get to a couple of entries that are really really mind-blowing. The first is Vokensen's flute player. And like I said, this one is uh, kind of a twofer. It's not really just the one. We're going to talk about his famous duck automaton as well, which when I have mentioned to our colleagues that we were working on this podcast, everyone asks about the duck. And I just kind of shrug. We'll get there. (laughs) So Jacques de Vokensen was born in Grenoble on February 24th of 1709. And he was the youngest child of 10 uh, born to a glove maker and uh, a devout Catholic wife. And the story goes that Jacques was obsessed with mechanical things at a very young age. Uh, he studied with the Jesuits as a youngster. He even entered a monastery at the age of 16 as a means of supporting his scientific studies, because at that point his father was gone and his mother couldn't really just pay for him to play in his uh, mechanized world. And then later in 1728, he left the monastery to study medicine and anatomy in Paris. And throughout his life, Vokensen was inspired by medical science and his passion for an insight into the workings of anatomy garnered him several patrons that supported his work through the years. His most famous automaton was a gold-plated copper duck. And what a duck it was. It could do many of the things real ducks could do. It could It could quack and drink water and flap its wings and mimic the digestive process, reminding me of many novelty items (laughs) owned by my grandfather. So, yes, it's the famous pooping robot duck, which everybody knows about. Uh, You know, it's one of those like when you go, oh, ancient robots, they go pooping robot duck. Right. Yes. (laughs) In a letter written to the Abbey de Fontaine. He wrote, my second machine or automaton is a duck in which I represent the mechanism of the intestines, which are employed in the operations of eating, drinking and digestion, wherein the working of all the parts necessary for these actions is exactly imitated. The duck stretches out its neck to take corn out of your hand. It swallows it, digests it and discharges it digested by the usual passage. 
and I, I feel compelled to know it didn't actually digest it. it. There was no chemical breakdown of whatever you handed it. You could hand it buttons and it would, those would pass through its automated little system. And I think w- when modern ears hear it, they think of it as this kooky novelty thing, but really he was trying to represent a full, um, anatomical being. Like to him, it was more about the science of and study of you know biology than it was like look my duck poops so <laughs> right not so much to be something you would buy in the back of a Spencer Gifts right but that duck was actually created to boost attendance at an exhibit of another of Vokensen's works which was his automatic flute player the flute player was allegedly conceived in a fevered state while he was ill a famous marble statue by sculptor Antoine Coiserveau was the inspiration for the shape of the figure. Although Vulcanson's version was made of wood and then painted to look like marble. And this figure was 5.5 feet tall, which is about uh, 1.7 meters. Uh, and in the modern book, Living Dolls, A Magical History of the Quest for Mechanical Life, Gabby Wood writes of the mechanical flute player, Nine bellows were attached to three separate pipes that led into the chest of the figure. Each set of three bellows was attached to a different weight to give out varying degrees of air, and then all pipes joined into a single one, equivalent to a trachea, continuing up through the throat and widening to form the cavity of the mouth. The lips, which bore upon the whole of the flute, could open and close and move backwards or forwards. Inside the mouth was a movable metal tongue, which governed the airflow and created pauses. This automaton breathed. Which is cool. It's really cool. Um, It's an incredibly complex design. And of course, uh, you know, the flute is a hard instrument to play when you're an actual human. So... He had to do something tricky. Yes. So borrowing from his family's roots, he gave the flute player's hands a skin covering to mimic the soft touch that you need to play a flute. It's a tricky instrument to master, even for people. And his mechanoid minstrel could play 12 different tunes. And this flute player went on display uh, on February 11th of 1738. And the cost of entry to see this marvel was roughly equivalent to a week's worth of wages for the average manual laborer. So this was a serious moneymaker because people were paying that to go see it. I mean, it was too fantastical to skip, Uh, which is why when the attendance fell off, Vokensen added the duck to the exhibit as well as another piece called the tambourine player in an effort to bring audiences back and keep the money flowing. He sold off his mechanical creations in 1741 and at that point became France's inspector of silk manufacture. His adventures in that job could really be their own podcast. They really could. He really sort of revolutionized looms. Um, but the flute player and the other automata changed hands several times. And the flute player was last seen in the possession of Gottfried Christoph Beres, doctor to the Duke of Brunswick. And then he disappeared from history after the doctor's death. Uh, the duck turned up a couple more times and... Uh, there are allegedly, there are pictures of it or something that's very much like it that you can find online. But the flute player, we don't, we don't know where it landed. Which is a pity because I would really love to see how that works. Right. And then for our final entry in our list of five instances, there are actually three pieces in this. But, uh, they're quite marvelous. Yes. They are the work of Pierre Jacques Edras, who was born on July 28th, 1721 in Switzerland. His family was primarily involved in two modes of employment, farming and watchmaking. 
1738, Jacques Edrez opened up his own watch shop in Le Chat de Fonds. And initially he specialized in pendulum clocks, but eventually he turned his attention to automated mechanisms and eventually began to sm- sell small automata to his special clients. I also feel like we should mention that he is, it's kind of a side note, but he's often credited with creating the wristwatch. So he was very much into shrinking mechanisms down, yeah. which plays into his work in automata. In 1774, he and his son Henri-Louis and a clockmaker, Jean-Frédéric Lachaud, presented their three creations, which are still considered to be marvels of mechanical engineering. The musician is the first one, and it's a female, and um, she plays an organ. And it's not an actual organ, it's a custom instrument that looks like an organ. And she will bow at the end of her performances, uh, and she plays five different tunes. And the mechanical works are actually all concealed beneath her gown, but her fingers move super briskly and they tap along at the instrument's keys. And it, it's really quite something to watch. The draftsman can draw four pictures, and he'll also blow dust and graphite off of his page. And the draftsman looks more like a little boy, and he looks almost identical to the third one, which is an automaton that people uh, sort of hold in this extremely high regard, because it's really quite a marvel. It's called The Writer. And it's, um, to my mind, and I think the mind of, of many other that others that study this subject, it's the most impressive of the three because he can write as many as 40 letters in sequence. And because he is built with a series of coded gears in his back that can be moved, he can actually be programmed to write new sequences. His messages aren't static. Uh, and he'll dip his pen in an inkwell so the ink needs to be refreshed whenever he writes. And he carefully scrawls out the program message onto paper. And his eyes actually follow his pen as he's working, yes. which is sort of amazing and wonderful. The fact that this one can be programmed to do different things would probably put him higher on the list in like the nitpickers list of <laughs> yeah. robots, because uh, one of In terms of today's terminology, one of the hallmarks of robotics is that these are programmable things, not just things that work on like a remote control or some kind of tether. Yeah. Uh, And Jacques Edrez would take these automata around with him on tour while he was visiting wealthy families. And he would, you know, have them do their little activities and show off. And then he would use those charms to sell his high-end watches and smaller automata to his elite clientele. And he would also book them into hotel rooms and then charge admission for people to just come and see them. And the Jacques Edrez name is still famous for its watches. Um, Just as Paul Poiret, who we discussed in a previous podcast, has brought branding into fashion houses, Jacques Edrez did a similar thing, and he understood the idea of building a brand in his industry, uh, and his touring automata were part of that brand. Today, this trio lives in the Museum of Art and History in Switzerland, and they all still work, which is a testament to the extraordinary engineering and skill that went into their creation. Yeah, those are other ones that you can see lots of video footage of online. Yeah. Uh, you know, people carefully programming them. And uh, I've noticed in some of them, the writer, he's a little um, squeaky in some points. They have to scoot the the paper along for him a little bit because mm-hmm. the paper actually gets kind of moved on this little um, carrier that goes back and forth underneath his hands. But generally, he's still, I mean, they're all still in great working order and pretty amazing. And I feel like um, we should mention as we wrap up, we're not going to talk about this one, but uh, I know people will ask why we didn't include it, which is the Karakuri Ningyo, which are Japanese automata uh, that 
are generally referenced from like 16th through early 19th century. And I really think they deserve their own podcast. So stay tuned. Uh, it would be weird to talk about robots and not mention Japan at all. So I wanted to make sure we at least pointed those out. Uh, they also kind of go past the point in history where we wanted to do the cutoff. Not so much the early a little later than early. Some of it's in this realm that I was talking about, but it goes on a little bit further. And there are many different types, and I feel like they just they deserve their own whole little discussion because they're really quite amazing. But uh, those are, like I said, a little sampling of historical robotics and automata that I just I think it's sort of beautiful and wonderful that going back these thousands of years, we've always been obsessed with creating sort of mechanized versions of ourselves and other natural elements of the world. Right. And a lot of these remind me of stuff that happened much later, or things that, that later would not have been quite so impressive. Like yeah. the, um, you look at the movie Hugo and the book that it was based off of, like that was a much more recent era mm-hmm. of, of clockworks and steam-based things and, and automata that could write things. Yeah. Um, and this uh, predates those sort of things by some hundreds of years. Yeah. It's very, very cool. So that's historical robots. We'll hopefully do more perhaps in the future in addition to the Japanese ones. It's because robots are awesome. They're really cool. I also, as, a, as we're reading this, I, I just... Like, every description sort of could have ended with the sentence. And then they all came to life, and the doctor had to come and save us. Uh, because that, along with the intriguing idea of making mechanical life is the idea of that going horribly wrong in the human consciousness. None of these seem to. Nope, they all, none of them came to They're life. They're not running the They didn't take over the world. So let's take a moment to have a word from our sponsor. Do you also have some listener mail? I do indeed. Uh, this mail is from Elizabeth, and it is yet another email about um, our podcast on the domestication of cats. She's gotten a bunch of, and also lots of people sending cat pictures. Keep them coming, because I love them. Yeah, the cat pictures are really brightening our listener inbox. They're so fun. Uh, and Elizabeth says, I really enjoyed your recent podcast about the domestication of cats. I'm an evolutionary biologist, so I'm always super excited when you guys mix a little science in with your history. The Straight Up History podcasts are awesome as well. As someone who works, who, who worries a lot about wildlife conservation, though, there was one point I wished you'd emphasized more. Cats may be fascinating animals and wonderful pets, but the fact that humans have introduced these deadly little predators all over the world has had a devastating impact on wildlife. Domestic cats are implicated in the extinction of several bird species and are also a huge threat to reptiles, amphibians, and small mammals. As much as I empathize with cat owners' desire to let their pets roam outside, even well-fed domestic cats kill quite a few wild animals. There's actually a project at the University of Georgia, right in your backyard, that seeks to quantify this by attaching cameras to outdoor cats' collars. Here's a link to a webcomic about the project and one about the project page itself, which we can also share with our listeners. Uh, if you guys ever touch on this or a similar topic again, it would be great if you could encourage fellow cat lovers to minimize their pet's impact on local wildlife by following some of the recommendations from the Kitty Cams Project. Uh, thanks for letting me bother you about this, and thanks for all the amazing podcasts. I uh, This is one of those things that I'm actually surprised I didn't mention it either. Well, and I think the reason that I didn't mention it is that 
I I sort of take for granted that that people know should they should keep their pets indoors, which I don't know why I would take that for granted because I see cats running around outside all the time. Yeah, uh, not everybody feels that way, and no. it can be a very divisive subject if you bring it up among uh, people that have cats. Yes, I mean I'm definitely like an indoor only cat owner. Me too, but I know lots of people feel like it's not fair to the cats, and there there's debate to be had about it. Um, but it really, they really do have uh, quite an impact on the natural world outside when they go out because they are predators. And even if, as Elizabeth mentions, even if they're well fed, that doesn't necessarily cut their prey drive down. Right. And my keeping my cats indoors is really motivated by my desire for their own safety. Yeah. <laughs> More uh, so than not killing the birds and the reptiles and all those things. Yeah. I'm definitely a, a nervous Nelly when it comes to that. I don't know how people can let their cats just go outside because the very thought of it strikes fear in my heart. Right. Um, well, the cat that I grew up with lived outdoors almost exclusively. She would come inside when it was really cold yep, in the winter. We had some of those too. This was also in, you know, nineteen eighty. In a pretty rural, in a area. Very rural yeah. area. Yeah. Yeah. And um, she was terrified of the road, so that was a thing that we didn't really have to worry. We didn't have to worry about her being hit by a car because she was absolutely terrified. She did not go near it. No, she would not. Uh yeah, I mean, I, I know people do worry that their cats won't get enough stimulation and play. And as she mentioned, there are some great resources that are linked on the Kitty Cam's website. And those are just fascinating pictures. I actually know a friend of a friend uh, was one of the people whose cats was used in that study. And I think she was pretty shocked when she saw some of the images that told the story of where her cat would go during the day. Uh, and, you know, many people found out that their cats actually had franchised other families and were kind of living <laughs> double lives. And uh, so it's kind of interesting from that point of view. But, uh, yeah, safety and not killing all the all the lizards and, and mice and other things. Yeah, there have definitely been case studies of, I, I know there's one story of like the light keep, the lighthouse keeper who brought his cat to his post at the lighthouse and the cat single-handedly exterminated all of the birds on the island where the lighthouse, lighthouse was. Ooh. Yeah, they are. They are very efficient little they predators. Are. They really are. Even, uh, I mean, I've known, this is just experiential evidence, but I've known even people who are like, well, my cat's declawed. It I've seen declawed cats take down birds, no problem. So mm-hmm. uh, you just got to keep them stimulated inside and make sure they're getting that prey drive yeah. met by indoor activities. And Which, declawing has its own. That's a whole other controversial party train. Yep. Uh, but yeah, so be kind to the environment and be mindful of what you're your pets might do to it. Yes. So thank you, Elizabeth, because uh, it took me a while to get to that mail, not because I didn't love it, but just because other mail jumped up in the way. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you may do so at historypodcast at discovery.com. You can also touch base with us on Twitter at Mist in History. You can also go to facebook.com slash history class stuff or visit us at mistinhistory.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Pinterest. If you want to learn uh, a little bit more about robots, you can go to our website and type in the word robots in the search bar, and you'll get an article called How Robots Work, which is more about modern robots, but still very fascinating, and clearly the result of activities like we're going on with these early automata. If you want to learn about almost anything else you could possibly think of, you can go to our website to do that, and that is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
Audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable digital audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. Audible has more than 100,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash history to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today.